Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we got to peek behind the curtains of academic publishing with Wendy Carroll. Wendy is the managing editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal Group and has been an editor for many years for various journals within the group. Wendy had some amazing insights into the whole process of what goes on with the submission process, as well as the overall landscapes for journals in 2022. Perhaps our favorite part of the conversation with Wendy was her tips about what makes for good writing. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Wendy Carroll. I was wondering for some of the listeners who may not have seen your name on the Canadian Journal of Surgery website and, and know all the incredible work you do, could you tell us initially where you grew up and, and what your pathway was to your role today? Sure. So thank you for having me. It's nice to chat with you both this morning. Um, so I grew up in Montreal uh, and I wanted to study journalism in university, which is what brought me to Ottawa. Um, so that is the path that I took, um, although I was just commenting before uh, before we got started that I'm quite an introvert. And so even though I was really strong in writing and editorial, um, <laughs> the interviewing that goes hand in hand with journalism was a little bit um, out of my personality. So I kind of preferred to be behind the scenes, which is how I sort of carved my way into publishing. So I started working with the CMAJ group 15 years ago this month. Um, and I uh, started on as a copy editor on CMAJ and did a year of really intensive training uh, working on that journal exclusively. And the following year, I took over as managing editor of the specialty journals that the CMAJ group published. So that's CJS, as well as one other specialty journal called uh, the Journal of Psychiatry and Neuroscience. And I did, I was in that role for about a decade. And four years ago, um, I took over as managing editor of the entire group. So the journals that I am responsible for are CMAJ. Um, CMAJ Open as well, although one of the editors who reports to me has, you know, run with that journal and she's doing a great job at it. And I have CJS, JPN, and JAMC, which is the French version of CMAJ. Um, so that is <laughs> the story of how I came to be where I am. Um, in my role, all of the copy editors who work in the department, as well as the editorial coordinators report to me. Um, so we are the team that tackles content once it's accepted and takes it through to the finish line to publication. You know, just to go back a step, I was wondering if you could break down sort of the structure and the mechanics of some of these terms for our listeners who, who may not see behind sort of the journal curtain in the sense of T tell us what a copy editor is. Tell us what a managing editor like you really does across all these journals and the nuts and bolts of it and sort of how that that behind the curtain world is structured. Sure. 
Um, so the role of the copy editor is really, it's language focused, right? So our authors are the content experts, but where my team comes in is we're doing our best to help the authors frame their work in the clearest possible way so that we can help you, you know, put the focus of your message where it should be um, and help ideas get expressed the best way. So things that a copy editor will do, you know, in addition to cleaning up some messy grammar or punctuation or things like that, we also want to look at content through a style lens. Um, and that means focusing on things like the use of inclusive language. So one thing that um, a copy editor will do in a paper is make sure that we use what we call person first language. So we won't refer to a person as a case or a subject or as their condition. We really want to put the focus on the person. Um, so that is something that a copy editor will do. And they also have to look through the lens of um, copyright law. So for example, if an author wants to reproduce um, a table or a figure that's been published elsewhere, we need to make sure that they've obtained the right permissions to be able to do that. Um, so the role of the copy editor is really, it's polish. And for some authors that requires more substantive work than others. Um, some content comes to us quite polished to begin with and others need a little bit more work. So that's where the copy editor role comes in. Uh, as far as the managing editor, I, I sort of think of myself as the person in the middle of the spider web that is a publishing group. So I have to manage the people who report to me and I have to manage the people who are above me and I report to. Um, so in other words, I, I'm trying to keep the people who owe me content on track. And then I try to keep the people who are working on the content on track. Um, and my role is to basically review and approve every single page we publish. So uh, once once a paper has been through copy editing and has gone to an author and authors are satisfied with their article, we finalize it, finalize the design, and then everything comes to me for a final check. And when I approve it, it goes to the online team and the publishing team to get it across that finish line into what's the finished product that people can access through our website or through PubMed or any other aggregator. You know, one minor note is, I guess, then, you know, if, if I'm reviewing a paper, uh, and I'm sure we'll delve into this even even more, but just on this point, um, when someone's reviewing a paper, I guess we really shouldn't focus on the grammar or the, you know, necessarily like the phrasing or or whether, what words are used, because one of uh, an editor is much better at that is going to go through the paper and try to help that. Or, or do you think that it's still important to, if, if I'm a reviewer, to comment on those types of things? I would think that a reviewer should be focusing more on the content itself. Because as I said, the copy editors think of us as the language and the communication experts. We're not the content experts. So um, what the reviewer should be focusing on is that 
the content is as methodologically sound as it should be. And that to you as the content expert, is it as clear as it should be? Because if you have questions, then we will definitely have questions. Um, so I would say definitely a reviewer doesn't need to focus on things like grammar and sentence structure. We've got that end of things. Um, what we want the peer reviewers to be focusing on is the integrity of the content. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, I'm an author. I submit my paper. It's accepted for publication. What are the steps then going forward? Like what actually happens to the paper between the time I press submit and the time it gets published? That's a great question. So I won't comment on peer review because I think a lot of a lot of your listeners are, have probably have the experience of having been peer reviewers. So once the peer review is complete, and then either Dr. Ball or Dr. Harvey press that accept button, um, that's when my team takes over. So there's a group of editorial coordinators who report to me, and they are the ones who take the manuscript from the submission system. So in our case, it's Scholar One's Manuscript Central. Um, and they basically prepare the file so that it's ready for a copy editor to take over and work their magic. Um, that seems like it should be simple, but it's actually really not. There are a lot of steps that the coordinators have to do uh, to be able to have a paper that's ready for a copy editor. Um, and sometimes those things um, can cause a little bit of a delay uh, if the files aren't as complete as they should be. So basically they have to go into the submission system and grab all the different pieces of the content and they have to make sure that everything's there. Um, so for example, if a paper has figures, but the figures come in and they're not editable or they're not high res enough, um, then those coordinators will have to work with the authors to chase down formats that we can work with. Um, in addition, they'll have to make sure that pieces like appendices, if there was an appendix mentioned in an article, was the appendix submitted, they have to collect that as well. Um, most importantly, they're in charge of collecting the publishing forms. Um, the most important one being the license to publish is the way copyright law works in Canada. Anyone who is an author on a paper is one of its copyright holders. And if we do not have a signed form from every author on a paper, we can't legally proceed with publishing that paper. So a huge part of the job of uh, a coordinator is to make sure that all the pieces are in and that we can work from them. Yeah, clearly, I mean, there's all this behind the scenes stuff that's going on that, that authors don't necessarily see. Uh, maybe I will actually ask Dr. Ball to comment a little bit on the peer review process. I, again, I think, Many people have had the experience perhaps of of, uh, of submitting papers, but maybe not necessarily so much on what the actual process of peer review is. And perhaps even Dr. Ball, if you could comment a little bit about what your role is as the co-editor-in-chief and, and how, do, how does that play into uh, the, the, the papers that perhaps have split votes per se, or you know, uh, where do you fit in as the, the co-editor-in-chief for what gets published and what doesn't. Well, the, thanks, Mayor. Maybe the first thing I would say is I, I feel uh, washes of guilt uh, coming over me listening to Wendy talk about 
trying to chase down appropriate and high high fidelity high fidelity imaging and and co-author uh, um, uh, publication forms. Um, you know, on the on the author side, right? You you write this paper and you're so proud of it, and you work through the peer review process and it gets published, and then you're like, what are these details that they don't seem to matter to me a bunch, but you know, as, as Wendy points out, nothing can go forward until all of that's in and, and they are critical. So it, it's, uh, as an author, it's, it's really incumbent upon us all to make sure those things get submitted appropriately and timely. Uh, you know, the peer review process is interesting. Um, most articles I would start by saying, and, and Wendy, jump in at any point here, because you know this better than I do, but usually there's, there's two reviews. Um, and then beyond that, once those reviews come back, they, they arrive at an associate editor uh, level, which is a third person who, as Wendy's pointed out, is a content expert, usually within a surgical subspecialty, for example, for us. So if it is a um, surgical oncology paper, uh, that associate editor will have a surgical oncology background and bend and connection. So goes out for review, comes back and Usually between those three opinions, um, the uh, thumbs up or thumbs down sort of comes out of it. If, if the two reviewers are split, oftentimes it'll go out for a third review, uh, which can be helpful. And then at the end of the day, the associate editor will make their call as to whether they think it should be published and accepted or not. Uh, and then it comes back to the editor in charge. And I think sort of uh, um, conceptually, we would fit between Wendy and the associate editors and have a little bit more sense of where the journal wants to go and maybe what the readership is, those sorts of uh, sort of softer elements and, and then make the final call there. But, you know, I would say overall, uh, we almost always generally agree with the associate editor opinion. Uh, would that be fair, Wendy? I think that's probably the case. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, in terms of the content that's that's submitted and accepted, CJS has a pretty high accept rate because the philosophy of um, of the editors in chief who've been the custodians of the journal while I've been on it has really been that this is the place that we want Canadian surgeons to go to publish their research. Um, so I think you're right, Chad, in that most most of the time the associate editors will make a call as the content experts and and you and Dr. Harvey usually agree with them. Um, I think that one of the challenges in terms of peer review sometimes can be finding people who have time or finding people who are truly content experts in a particular area to find the paper to to review the papers. So that's one thing that you know you could highlight as something a bit challenging about the peer review process because you know we can't we can't publish medical research without peer review but these reviewers are all volunteers and their time is tapped they've got a lot of requests coming in from different publications so it can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming to get those reviews in you know i'm i'm so glad you said that that's sort of where i was going to go next and I, I i completely agree and i would i would publicly as you know on behalf of ed and myself thank all of the reviewers that you know get that email uh, asking uh, us, of us asking them to, to do a review on a paper for, for doing that because the, these are unpaid uh, off the edge of your desk done late at night or early in the morning uh, at the expense of family and personal time. You know, one of the challenges, as you know, as well as we do in Canada, as compared to the U.S., where I'm also on a number of 
editorial boards and associate editorships is just the number of people, as you point out, in Canada, obviously at 10% of the U.S. In, in the U.S., it's, it's quite easy to find enthusiastic, opinionated, um, uh, good reviewing surgeons. And, you know, part of that is the way that surgeons in the U.S. are remunerated. You, you make more money as you climb the uh, sort of academic ladder. And part of that is contributing to peer review uh, as a process, not only just publishing at, at the other side of it. So um, there's a lot of very hungry people who, who, uh, who are willing to do that work um, really at every level. In Canada, as you point out, it, it is harder. And so we're really at the mercy of, of goodwill of our colleagues across the country. Um, and, you know, maybe at, at, at risk, it's always disappointing to me when you send out or an associate editor sends out a review request and it's it's rejected consistently from a given author who you know uh, does publish manuscripts in the peer-reviewed literature and, uh, you know, philosophically and ethically should be contributing to that that landscape. But that that's really the, the, the scenario that you have to deal with um, and, and try and uh, push our way through. Uh, for sure. I guess the message that I would send to people who might feel as though they can't manage a review or don't have time. I mean, when you're clicking that a yes or no button on an invitation email from the system, like it, it's may seem like an automated email, but there are humans <laughs> behind it. Um, and we have empathy. So if it's a question of, listen, I'm overwhelmed because I'm on service this week. Um, but if I could just have an extension, I could do this for you. You know, all you have to do is ask, <laughs> right? We can, we can make adjustments. So the invitation emails go out with standard timeframes, but you know, if somebody's prepared to commit to something, but they just can't turn it around in those two weeks, you know, we're, we're open to requests and, uh, people should feel free to contact the journal office and ask for whatever they need in that respect. Uh, that's, a, that's such a great point. You know, we, we, you and I and Amira, we've sort of danced around a, a little bit of this question, but I was wondering if, if there's anything in particular that comes to mind. And, and that's very simply for, for potential uh, or, or prospective authors out there who are either going to submit or, or writing a paper now. Do you have a, a list of absolute don'ts and absolute do's uh, as they go through that process? For sure. Um, it's funny. The biggest do on the list would be to consult the instructions for authors that are on website that are on our website. There's a lot of details in there that could be helpful. I mean, I think a lot of people don't necessarily, you know, go to read the instructions because they can be overwhelming. The pages and pages and infinite scroll of information, but there's there's some good details in there that can help people. Um, sift through the preparation process. Um, some issues that we encounter, for example, that might cause uh, a delay or a lot more running around um, that could have been avoided. Uh, sometimes papers are submitted in PDF format. Um, we can't work with PDFs. So uh, if a paper is submitted in PDF, for example, through the submission software, our coordinator will have to unsubmit and then go and request uh, an MS Word version. So even just version, what software to use to send in material um, seems like something so simple, but uh, that's something that can cause 
delays in, in there. So uh, prospective authors should definitely be working in MS Word for their submissions. Um, again, we already mentioned editable figures um, and for material that has been published elsewhere, for example, that can come up in um, meta-analyses and systematic reviews where we're collating information from previous previously published sources. So for material that goes in that type of paper, if anything has been published from another source, the appropriate permissions have to be obtained. Um, so it's much easier for that kind of thing to be gathered before that accept button is hit. Because if it reaches the copy editing stage, or God forbid, if it gets past the copy editing, editing stage and it comes all the way to me, and when I'm supposed to just review and say, yep, we're good to go, and I notice something and think to myself, hmm, do we have permission to use this? So that's that's not a delay you want to encounter at that late stage in the game. So it's really important for authors to be diligent about making sure they have permission to use information that's been previously published. Um, and certainly we don't expect surgeons or authors in any discipline to be copyright experts. So if an author who's in the submission planning stages has any questions about, hey, I'm not sure if I can use this or not, shoot us an email. We, we can walk you through the process. We can let you know what the requirements are, what you need to ask for when reaching out to um, a copyright holder for permission. Uh, so there are ways that the people in the journal office can help um, make sure that you're on track with that submission. Um, so those are the main things. So don't, don't take things that have been published elsewhere without permission and do consult the instructions for authors. This comes up a lot, when, you know, on Twitter and People complain about this all the time. Is there a way that we could standardize submissions amongst journals, like sort of across the board? Uh, because it, I think it's very hard and frustrating for authors to try to figure out the various formats and and submission uh, specifications across all these different journals. Has there ever been a discussion of you know between journals, like even if you just think about the the CMAJ group about actually standardizing some of these uh, submission requirements? That's a great question. Um, and I can say for the CMAJ group, uh, the team of coordinators who report to me are all about that standardization and trying to make the process um, similar, if not exactly the same across the journals that we publish. Um, and that's, that's been a bit more of a recent endeavor. Um, we used to be a little bit more separate in terms of the teams that worked on the journals. So where we are now is that everybody who is on staff uh, is trained at least as backup or to full on work on any of the journals that we publish. Um, but to answer your question about conversations among journals, that comment comes up uh, a lot. It's something that people who work on the peer review side of publishing are really cognizant of because we know the submissions are so different from one publication to the next. You know, I'm a member of the Council of Science Editors and have the opportunity to go to their annual conference sometimes. Um, obviously not the last couple of years because of COVID, but uh, that's definitely been 
a comment that's been raised um, at those continuing education sessions, uh, something very much at the forefront of minds of people in publishing. We're just not necessarily sure how to do it, how to make it work. Um, because not only do different publishing groups have their own processes, but different publishing groups use different manuscript submission systems and they're not all the same. So the short answer is we feel your pain and we know we know it's a sore spot and we know that we need to try to make things a little bit more standardized to make things easier for our authors. Um, but I think we don't have the answers yet. Yeah, it's not necessarily an easy problem to fix, which, you know, that Twitter, Twitter on Twitter, the only thing that people can do is is complain. Uh, but it's a lot, it's a lot easier to to complain than to actually come up with solutions. I, I did want to circle back to peer review and and I'd love Dr. Ball for you also to weigh in on this. You mentioned how hard it is to actually get peer reviewers to to particularly in Canada to to come on board and and do reviews in a non-remunerated fashion and, and in some ways not recognized right because the reviewers are are the names of the reviewers are not published i'm curious wendy your thoughts on other systems for peer review so such as actually having the names of the, the reviewer published along uh, with the manuscript or i've even seen some journals where they actually publish the reviewers comments as well um you know like have you thought about different systems for actually doing the peer review system and what kind of, what are the pros and cons of, of doing peer review in different ways? And maybe I ask Wendy for you to start and then I'd love Dr. Ball to comment as well too. So that's a great question. Um, and I can tell you that we haven't considered changing um, CJS's system from double blind at this point. Um, but one of our journals, CMAJ Open, does have open peer review. And as long as we have the reviewer's permission to post their comments, um, reviewer comments are actually published online as a data supplement to a paper once it's published. So it's definitely something we can do and that we'd be open to. Um, the decision of whether to do that would involve discussion with the editors-in-chief who are the custodians of the journal. But um, if that's if that's something that CJS would be interested in pursuing, then we can certainly have a conversation about it. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Amir. In, in the US where I publish a lot and review a lot, um, it's, a, I think, a bit of a stronger, or I should say more topical conversation, uh, more current conversation. I would tell you that my sense is about a third of reviewers uh, in the surgical space in the U.S. will put their names as a reviewer on everything. I, I do that. I say at the bottom, I always put a line in after I review a manuscript, you're free to use my name and let them know who it is. Um, some people, though, have a very different view of that and are nervous about that for a number of reasons. I'm sure you, you and our authors, sorry, our listeners could um, probably come up with, particularly in a, in a, in a time in an era where, um, you know, social media pressures are, can be so great and targeted. 
So I don't know where that's going to go. And I don't know if it'll become open, open, you know, uh, fully non-blinded eventually across the space. My gut says it will over the years, but I don't know. Um, you know, the, the other part is that from the editor in chief point of view, you, you do, um, you know, Wendy and her team, uh, not only at CJS and, and across the Canadian journals, but really at every uh, journal, so you get the review back from reviewer one, you get the review back from reviewer two, and you as an author see what they want you to see. But there's always a, a separate place where that reviewer will write comments, as you know, Amir, to the associate editor and the editor-in-chief. So sometimes you get these scenarios where the review that's that's going back to the author's uh, may seem relatively benign, like it may be quite polite, especially in Canada, and it may be like, here's eight things that you know I'm, we're asking about. But in the in the blinded or, or private notes to uh, um, editor in chief, associate editor Wendy, and so on, it's like this paper can't be published because there's this major flaw with it, and it's a much more frank part of it. So sometimes you get authors saying, "Hey, why was my paper rejected?" One author sort of, uh, sorry, one reviewer maybe liked it. One reviewer really didn't like it. And the reviewer in the middle um, is sort of lukewarm, but that reviewer in the middle has written a paragraph is sort of saying there's no way. And so that does create some conflict. And at the editor-in-chief level, we have to try and navigate that respectfully and, and carefully. But there is more going on even beyond the, re the review language um, in terms of opinion and assessment of, of these manuscripts. Sure, that's an interesting point. And I would imagine that there are you know, circumstances or situations that might make a reviewer really uncomfortable with having their comments being public. I mean, just coming from the perspective of someone who's edited content, when you're working with a brand new author, you have no experience of working with this person before, uh, sometimes it's hard to know how heavy handed for lack of a better term to be. Um, Cause you don't necessarily know how that feedback is going to be received. And it's certainly not your intent to appear like a bully or, or anything like that. But uh, I can imagine that many people would feel uncomfortable having their reviews public. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's interesting too, you know, the, two other things that come to mind. One is there's major cultural differences across general surgical subspecialties. And I'm not throwing anyone under the bus because I think most of us that, that publish in these spaces, uh, this is common knowledge. But if you look at, for example, trauma surgery focused journals and reviewers, they're infinitely more harsh than, for example, H HPB liver uh, um, sort of culture. Um, and it's not to say the content uh, and the quality of the review is better or worse, but the language and the maybe aggression it is very different. And I, I always find that, you know, quite interesting. The, the other thing, and, and I don't know, Wendy, if, if you would see this across all the journals you, you purview, but Ed um, in my sense is that over the years, more recently in particular, when, I'm, when a manuscript is rejected, there's a much higher frequency of a letter of sort of complaint of saying, why was this rejected? This should be accepted. This should be published. Like just more sort of anger, I would say. And I, I think it predated COVID as well. So I don't think it's just a, an exhaustion 
sort of uh, COVID-related issue. And it, it is interesting because, you, you know, I don't know, I, I've traveled around the world giving grand rounds on, on publishing, and, and there's sort of a slide that I talk about with that. You know, having published a fair bit, um, that's not a, a focus of energy that, that I've ever sort of triggered. I always say, well, uh, you know, I, I take the feedback, the rejection, I put it on the side of my desk, I let it sit there for a week, and I don't look at it. And then I start to look at it and go through it and say, what of these reviewer responses can I really objectively use and make the paper better? And then I move on to the next journal. Um, and there's not a lot of emotion behind it with the benefit of having done that a lot of times. But uh, I, I do find it at the editor-in-chief level more challenging by the year and by the month with really upset that uh, authors uh, on on occasion uh, and in increasingly frequently, you know. Yeah, I I suspect you're right. And I mean, this is not the case for CJS in particular, but I mean, we do have other journals whose accept rate is very low um, just in terms of we, we could never publish as many papers as are submitted to that particular journal. So sometimes papers get rejected, not because they're not good enough, but, you know, maybe we just published six papers on, you know, hip replacement in a row. And the paper that you submitted isn't really adding anything different to the conversations. So it's not necessarily that it's rejected because it's not good enough. It's maybe rejected because the topic is saturated in this particular publication. And it may be worth your while to take the feedback and then look elsewhere. I mean, the spirit of rejection is not malicious in any way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's hard to take um, for sure. Uh, I think initially <laughs> the feeling of rejection, but if, if you look at it, take a step back <laughs> in terms of the whole process, it's it, it's part of the voyage. Um, you know, the, the other thing is, as you know better than me, is that the the rejection uh, methodology link is has become stronger and stronger and stronger over the last 20 years. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's quite hard now to publish single center retrospective studies asking a very nice clinical question um, by a group of authors. Um, you, you know, it's sort of, we're in the era, I think of uh, at the very minimum in, in, many, in many cases, multi-center retrospective research and ideally methodologically stronger than that. So it's not, um, it's not uncommon to do a great single center study at your, at your center that has a really important quality improvement uh, a piece to it, but may not really apply to other centers and hasn't included other centers. And so that applicability uh, piece to uh, you know, a greater uh, a target audience may not be there. And uh, a lot of those papers, you know, have to go through a lot of different journal submissions and come down the ladder, unfortunately. And you go back a decade ago, those were all being accepted at, you know, the top subspecialty journal uh, across many fields. And so the, the actual content and methodology, not requirement, but, but bar or threshold has changed significantly too. Wendy, I mean, you've been an editor for a long time. And uh, I know this is like asking, trying to ask someone to summarize E.B. White's uh, 
you know, elements of style, but what, what, are, what are some of the things that like you look at uh, manuscripts and you, you think, Oh God, how, how did someone write this? Or, or what are some of your tips for writing good, high quality scientific manuscripts? Are there any like things that you've noticed over the years, some principles that, that just seem to stand out as these, these are what make uh, good manuscript writing. Actually, it's, it's funny. Um, your question made me think of a workshop I took a long time ago that was offered by Editors Canada. Um, and the editor who developed the workshop retired quite a while ago and doesn't deliver it anymore. But I think, I think it's been adapted, but it was called eight step editing. And there were basically eight tips of things to look for on each pass of a manuscript that you're working on. And those, those tips apply to writing as well, because they're such easy things to do to make writing stronger. Um, so, you know, without giving away, <laughs> without giving away the content of a workshop that doesn't belong to me, a couple of things that I learned and still apply when I go through manuscripts and try to polish them up. Um, using active verbs really helps. Um, so there's a tendency I find, especially in scientific writing, um, where people want to use the passive voice rather than the active voice. Um, and they use a lot of they use a lot of the verb to be. So the actual action of a sentence is often hidden. And just changing that structure around makes your writing pop really, really well. And so I know that, you know, there's some purists who uh, like to focus on passive voice because that was traditional in the scientific publishing, but we're trying to move away from that because uh, it makes writing so much stronger and so much easier to read. So that's one thing that I would offer as a tip for better writing. Um, and I would also say that one of the style things that we have to, that we are looking for these days um, is what I mentioned before about inclusivity. So we really want to make sure that we're using inclusive language and that we're putting the person first in everything that we're publishing. Uh, and inclusive language can be a challenge because it's always evolving. So we might make a style decision and say, this is the acceptable term for this group of people or for this situation. And then we use that expression for a year or two. And then we learn that that expression was not the greatest idea after all. Um, so language evolves and it's a learning process. So we try to take feedback from different groups. Um, so if concern is expressed that we did something wrong, we listen and we try to make those changes. So it's important for any writer to be aware of that kind of sentiment among the populations we're writing about. 
those are some fantastic uh, writing tips and style tips. Um, what Wendy, when you're reviewing a manuscript, how number one do you check for things like plagiarism, and two, if you detect plagiarism, what do you do about it? And I'm curious uh, as well as if CJS uses any of these um, softwares um, to actually try to detect plagiarism. So I don't believe that CJS runs all manuscripts through software. We do have a software that we will um, run. I believe we're running things as spot checks at the moment. I don't know if everything gets run through. Uh, I would have to check with the person who's tasked with doing that. Um, but as an editor, you can kind of keep an eye out for red flags. So for example, if you're working your way through a manuscript and it's kind of rough going, but then you get to a section that is, you know, surprisingly written really, really clearly, and then it gets back to rough going text, you may, um, your spidey senses may start to tingle. Uh, and then you can kind of copy some of that passage and throw it into Google and see, see what you find. Um, so we do look for some red flags of, you know, an obvious style change or an obvious language skill change when we're going through a paper um, to look out for that kind of thing. The letter of the law, honestly, is that if you say, for example, let's just pick let's pick a, a potential domain that, that say happened uh, this calendar year. So if you submit um, two papers built from the same data set, that has to be discussed just purely disclosed ideally in your methodology and your cover letter you should say this is a data set from this other publication and we've now sort of rejigged it or added to it or done whatever to it and so here's a here's a new angle and it and a new important question that's the above board thing to do and that's what uh eic's will look for um having said that sometimes not only that escapes um <laughs> the circumstance but two papers just sort of almost exactly the same to two different journals over two different periods of time. And that does, that does happen. So in theory, you're, you know, you reject it, you say it looks a lot similar to this, you should reference it, change it. And sometimes the feedback from the authors is, uh, is sort of nothing. And sometimes they return with aggression and try and defend why it's, why it's different. The truth is at the end of the day, if it's truly plagiaristic, you're supposed to report that to their respective university and departments. We mm -hmm. usually choose not not to do that, um, at least in Canada. In the U.S., for sure, it's going to happen a hundred times out of a hundred. They're they they're they're not quite as uh, a conciliatory, but um, you know there is potentially a really big uh, fallout from from academic fraud and publishing fraud. Yeah. And I mean, if people contact the journal office saying, hey, listen, I saw you publish this, but that's actually plagiarized. We published this here. You know, a whole investigation kind of ensues. So not only academically, but at the journal office, we have to go back through the queue and figure out when was paper A submitted versus paper B and when was it accepted. And we have to do all this investigation to figure out how this came to be and there are certainly steps that we would have to take if if plagiarism were found to be the case so certainly no journal editor is going to 
you know, stick with publishing something that was taken from elsewhere. And we'd have to look into a retraction process and all sorts of things. Yeah, it, it almost seems like stupidity, uh, I think, in 2022 to try to plagiarize things, although I'm sure people try. But it just it's so easy to, to cross-reference things and check things that have been published in other places that really it's just it's not going to be easy for you to to plagiarize things. Um, what do you what's your both of your sense and, and Wendy, I'm particularly interested in having, you know, you having seen the evolution of things from from sort of behind the scenes as well. How do you think predatory journals have changed the way that publishing works? And or or do you think it hasn't made any difference? Like where, where do predatory journals fit into the landscape and has it affected um, the editorial process at all? Oh, that's a great question. It's a little difficult to answer too. <laughs> um, I feel like that kind of would come into play a little bit before content actually reaches my team. But um, in terms of predatory journals, if you're thinking of the type of publication that it's basically pay for publication, like you, you know, give us some money, we're going to get your paper out to the world. And these promises are put out there. Um, I think part of that, that affects my team is that it kind of sets unreasonable expectations in terms of turnaround. Um, so it can be difficult to have to go back and explain to an author, especially if they've paid a publication fee, um, who questions, you know, my paper was accepted two weeks ago and I haven't heard anything from you. It's like, okay, well, we're a full service publishing department and there are many steps that have to happen before we can get a paper to completion. Whereas um, some of these predatory publications, when they actually put material out, there's not been the level of work that we offer put on it. Um, and they make promises that a legit publishing shop can't really offer, especially in a smaller market. So I would say that might have had an effect in terms of expectations of what the people working on a journal are able to are able to accomplish in a particular amount of time. Um, in terms of effects on authors, I'd maybe defer to Chad because he has the author experience and what those types of promises and expectations and the effect that they can have on authors. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's a good summary. It's, it's no different on the authorship side. Predatory journals is, I think probably everybody listening knows are an, an increasing uh, scourge or, or problem. Um, their financial structure is very different. They are for profit, as, as Wendy mentions. Um, so they're just interested in really the submission and publishing fees uh, to generate income. Um, and almost across the board, there's very little, if any, relevant or quality peer review. The other thing that they were very good at initially was putting or trying to put uh, well-known 
folks, clinicians in particular, onto editorial boards to again kind of give it the uh, the uh, the visage that it it was a, a true journal, but but really they're not, and I don't know <clears throat> um, you know how many emails um, uh, everybody gets, you know, community and academic practice, but. Certainly, predatory journal solicitations uh, come into my email box multiple times a day. Uh, there's a, a beautiful CJS um, manuscript that looked at that, published by Duncan Nickerson, one of the plastic surgeons in Canada. Um, that was very interesting, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a big problem for sure. In the irony, Dr. Ball, like what you said about the fact that the the bar for sub publication in many journals has gone up. And yet, in some ways, the bar has never been lower to actually get content, whatever your content might be, out into the world. So it's kind of this funny position that we find ourselves. I mean, you know, on this topic, Wendy, uh, can I ask, are, 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 how are journals funded? And uh, I, know, I know we've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but can you talk a little bit about how journals are funded? Um, do they make any money? And are the editorial board and reviewers paid? Sure. So um, I can only comment on the journals that I run. <laughs> uh, so certainly there are different circumstances for different publishing houses. Um, in our case, uh, we do have article processing charges um, for all of our journals. Um, even though the CMAJ group is technically considered for profit, a distinction my publisher would want me to make here is that we don't actually make money. So the article processing charges that we put out, um, really, the expectation is that the journals, we hope that they break even. Uh, so the revenue that we try to generate through article processing charges and through advertising revenue that's basically to pay for the running of the journal and um, the publishing of the journal. So, you know, in our case, yes, we have the journal funded. And in CJS's case, we also have sponsorship from the um, departments of surgery across the country. So that sponsorship helps us keep C uh, CJS's article processing charges on the lower side. They're considerably lower than uh, what the other journals are charging. Um, but definitely we we do not make any money off the publication. We are just using that uh, funding to run the publication. Yeah, to, to answer your question about the editorial board, it's it's the same thing. The the associate editors are not not paid at all. And as we've talked about, the reviewers are not paid at all. So this is really truly a uh, a volunteer um, uh, experience because of people's ethical belief that they should contribute. Well, we've certainly touched on a lot of topics today, uh, Wendy, and we, we appreciate your time so, so very much. I, I was wondering if we could close with you with just sort of a 30,000 foot question, which is, <laughs> you know, we, we've kind of, yeah, we've kind of touched on it a little bit here and there, but the, the peer reviewed journal landscape has changed a lot over I wouldn't even say 20 years, I would say extremely rapidly, maybe five to eight years or so, you know, it's moved from 
exclusively print to um, mix uh, a format to many, many journals, including CJS, really online and electronic only. Um, what has that change been like for you, uh, given, given your role? And I'm curious if you have any sense of maybe uh, from any angle where journals are going to go next. <laughs> that is a 30,000 foot question. <laughs> um, in terms of my role, I have seen several changes across the journals. When I started on CJS, it was a print product. Um, we did have a website, but the website was access-based. I believe you had to be able to log in. It was on the C the CMA website, um, which I believe the publications, you had to be a member of CMA to be able to access them. Um, and then we introduced more of an online format and then open access was coming into play. So, you know, CJS's content has been freely available to people for a long time now. Um, but to meet the requirements for capital O, capital A, open access, um, you need to be able to provide a specific license. So that change has only been made uh, recently, but now we are open access. Um, in terms of where it's going, gosh, that's that's a really huge question because there's so many things that come into play that make us have to course correct <laughs> and change the way we do things. Um, the open access initiative was one of those things. Um, Right now, a huge undertaking uh, has been the web content accessibility guidelines. Um, so that is to ensure that all the content that we publish on our website, because now we are a digital journal, so the, the web version is the version of record. And we have to ensure that anybody who wants to be able to access the content can. So um, we're needing to follow guidelines to make sure that someone who is, for example, visually impaired and has to use a reader to access the content that the things that we publish aren't going to, quote unquote, fail um, the requirements so that a reader can actually go through them properly. Um, and, you know, on that point, I actually had the opportunity through one of the last um, Council of Science Editors conferences I attended to see an example of how uh, a reader was going through scientific medical content is really heavy. And I can't imagine having to rely on that to get the information. So we really need to be making those kinds of efforts to make sure that people can access our content. Um, so right now, the trends of where we're going are all about accessibility equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, so in terms of publishing models, uh, my publisher would be much better in a position to answer that kind of 30,000 foot question. Um, but where we're going at the moment is really towards inclusivity. You've been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at
podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.